this morning by saying something that might sound a little bit dumb. It's okay for me to sound dumb every now and then, right? I was challenged by the sermon last Sunday. <laughs> now, it's dumb because I'm the one who preached the sermon. Uh, but, but sometimes, well, pretty much all the time, when I, as I'm preparing sermons, as I'm preparing from the text of Scripture, there will come a, a, a time, a point, where something will just catch me off guard. And I personally will be challenged by what I'm preparing. And sometimes it happens as I'm preaching the sermon, and sometimes it happens right after I preach the sermon. And so uh, last Sunday and, and during this week, I was really challenged personally. Am I being effective at carrying out the mission which Christ has given us in making disciples? Personally, am, am I being effective? And am, am I being a disciple-making disciple of Jesus? And then as a church, I was thinking too, are we being effective at making disciples? It challenged me, but it also really got me excited. Got me excited about what God is going to do in our church and through our church and to our church. Got me excited about making disciples again. So I've been thinking, you know, are, are the ministries that we have, in what ways are they effective, in what ways are they working great, and in what ways are they not working so great? And I've been, I've been dreaming, I've been thinking, what does God want for our church? What do we want to see our church look like? So I want to ask you to join me in thinking about that. Join me in considering, are you a disciple-making disciple? In what ways is our church effective? In what ways could our church do better at making disciples? Join me in thinking about those things and look forward to what God will do to us, in us, and through us. And I'm excited about that. So I just wanted to start off letting you know about this, that. Last week was... What is God's will for our church? What does God want for His church in the world? And today's kind of a, a little more on a personal note. What does God want for your church involvement? What is God's will for your church involvement? We saw last week, it's God's purpose that we as a church glorify Him by being on mission, making disciples, and by being pure by being morally pure, by reflecting His holy nature. But on a personal level, what does God want from you as far as church involvement? Sometimes we see things as very complicated, so difficult that we lose track of what we're doing, uh, what we're trying to do in the first place. Not too long ago, I went to get a pastor's badge at a hospital. I won't name what, uh, what hospital it was because you'll think I don't like Duke anymore, but... It, I went to go get a, a, a pastoral badge that allows us to go into some places that not everybody can go in. It allows us to get discount on parking because we're there so often. So it's worth getting. But um, when I went to get the badge, it seemed like they made things so difficult that I didn't even know if it was worth it anymore to pay the $5. Maybe I would just pay a little extra for parking and, and try to get my way into certain rooms. But it, it was so difficult. Uh, I had to prove I was the pastor by getting something sent in on letterhead. I understand that to a point, um, but it seemed like a, a real hassle to try to prove to them who I said I, I was, that I really worked for this church. Um, then when I got there, I had to walk to one place, the chaplain's office, then to the place to get the photos done, and actually I didn't have something that I needed when I went to the photo place, so I had to go back to the chaplain. It seemed like I was walking all over the campus of Duke Hospital just to get this badge. I was wondering if it was really worth it anymore. 
And sometimes we treat the Christian life like that. We create all kinds of hoops that we have to get through. If I really want to be a good Christian, I need to read my Bible for at least one hour a day. I need to pray for at least an hour a day. I need to fast. I need to meditate on Scripture for 30 minutes a day. I need to, to witness to five people this week. And it all becomes exhausting, and pretty soon we're not sure why we're doing it in the first place. We make things so complicated. But notice those things that I mentioned aren't based on being in the church. They aren't church-based actions. They're very individual. And there are some who say that church-based Christianity is a thing of the past. We don't need the church anymore. We're, we're good if we have a bunch of Christians who can connect online or, or gather together to do mission projects, but they say we don't need the church anymore. And I want to argue that that's not the case at all. I think for a while we've done a good job on one thing, but I think we've gone a little too far to one extreme. We've made the right and good point that just because you go to church doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. We all know that, right? Just because you go to church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. But we've gone too far. And now many have said that we don't need the church at all to be a faithful Christian to Jesus. And that would be unheard of to Jesus. Unheard of to the disciples of Jesus and unheard of to the early church. They would have said, what do you mean you don't go and gather with other Christians? That's where I get life. That's where I get reminded day after day of the promises of God. So what I'd like to do this morning is try to simplify things a bit. Now, there's more to it than what I'm going to share with you this morning, but this is a good starting point for your Christian life, for your church involvement. I want to point to just three church-based spiritual actions that God wants you to do. And this is God's will for your church involvement. First, it's God's will that you regularly attend church. Now, I know I'm preaching a little bit to the choir here because you're here, right? But it's God's will. He wants you to regularly attend church. And I don't mean the church building. We know also that uh, the church is not the walls and the bricks and everything that is made up of this building. The church is God's people. I mean by the word church what the New Testament usually means when it uses the word church. It means the assembly, the gathering together of Christians together in one place on Sunday to worship the Lord and to hear His Word. You might be thinking, though, what I heard someone say not too long ago. The Bible doesn't say you have to go to some shrine of a building to be a Christian. It doesn't say you have to go to church to follow Jesus and to be a faithful Christian. There is, however, strong evidence, I think, that we're supposed to join together week in and week out for preaching, for singing, for prayer, for the Lord's Supper. I'll take you first to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't, there are some in, in, right in front of you in the seat. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says this, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In this first verse there, verse 23, the hope we profess that the author is talking about is that we have forgiveness of sins and access to God, all because of the blood of Jesus, all because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. God is faithful, there's no doubt about it. He has saved us by Jesus and all who have come to believe in Him. But look what he says again in verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another as the day approaches. So evidently, Christians not attending the assembly together, Christians not going to church, if you want to put it that way, is not a new problem. right? This is something that, that the author of Hebrews encountered. We may think it's new. We may think it's just something happening because of the declining spirituality in our culture, which does seem to be the case. But the author makes it clear that this was an issue all the way back then, too. Just a little while after the events of Jesus, too. Can you imagine that? Not too long after Jesus lived, died, was resurrected, ascended into heaven, you know, maybe 20 years later, 30 years later, we had those who were professing to be Christians no longer gathering with other Christians for worship. They just, they just got out of the habit altogether, and they gave it up. The author says, no, don't do it. Don't give it up. This is important. There are some habits that we need to give up. You probably have ones that you know you need to give up for our health, for our safety, to give a good example to others. Maybe you made some resolution a week ago and you've already broken it. You know, that happens sometimes, right? But there are some habits that we have to keep doing, that we have to struggle to keep doing. We should keep eating healthy. We should keep exercising. We should keep, for our souls, reading the scriptures. We should keep praying. And the author here says we should keep the habit of going to church, of gathering together for worship. I've read some studies that say it takes 21 days to break a habit. I've read others say it takes 30 days uh, of, to break a habit. But it seems like for church attendance, many lose the habit after just missing just a few times. Right? It only takes a couple times, and before you know it, you're gone for years. And to start the habit maybe can take even longer, but usually if you have a goal in mind, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, then you can do it. So I want to make this challenge to you if you haven't been very habitual at coming to church. Make a commitment to come to church for 30 days. That's four Sundays, one month, one-twelfth of a year. Make a commitment to come for a month and see that doesn't be, to be, can't begin creating a habit in your heart and a longing in your heart to gather together with God's people. If you have a friend or family member who doesn't attend, tell them this too. Make this challenge to them too. Now why don't you try it for one month? Why don't you try it for four Sundays? Gathering together. You know you ought to. Most people already know this, right? Most who call themselves Christians know they ought to be gathering together weekly for church, but for some reason or another. Maybe health begins them on that, getting out of the habit. Maybe 
a family crisis, maybe something legitimate, but then before they know it, they aren't here anymore. And what's it, it's important for us to remember, though, is that it's not just for the sake of coming, is it? We don't come to church just for the sake of coming. If that was the case, I'd say forget it. Don't come to church. If you're just going to come for the sake of coming, don't come. But remember again why the author of Hebrews said we should do this. Why we should continue coming together. To spur one another on toward love and good deeds. To encourage one another. To help us hold fast to the faith that we hold. Usually it's not those who faithfully attend church who are led astray into some cult or false religion. It's those who have gotten out of the habit. It's those who have given up on gathering together. Hebrews is not the only evidence I have for this point. There's more. There's this, the seven-day Sabbath pa pattern of six days a week you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, and the Jews rested on the seventh day and worshipped on the seventh day. There's the consistent practice of the Christians in the early church. They met together on the Lord's Day, the day they celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. There are instances in the letters of Paul and when he, he talks about what they should do when they come together, how they should act when they come together. He's talking about that assembly. He's talking about coming together as a church. God wants Christians to attend the assembly. But here's where it gets a little tougher. When we do finally attend, when we do finally come together to assembly, we must be engaged in worship. We must be eagerly engaged in worship. This is where we can all get in a little bit of trouble, right? Which one of us has not at some point in time had a difficult time paying attention as people pray or as the scripture is read or as I preach? Which one of us has not had a difficult time staying awake? For some reason I've found when I'm sitting in the congregation listening to a sermon that 11.30, about 11.40 is one of the most difficult times to stay awake. And I think it's because Satan is working. He doesn't want us to hear and internalize the message of the Word. You know, it could also be we didn't get enough sleep last night. We didn't get prepared for worship. Now this is something we need. If, if you're going to play a sport or something, you get prepared for it. You get ready for it. So often we neglect getting prepared for worship. Which one of us has not sung with passion? Which one of us has not just mouthed the words and yet thought nothing about what they meant? When someone is praying, are we considering their words and praying along with them? Or when someone is preaching the word, are you striving to consider the text? What does this mean? What does it mean for my life? What does this mean for how I can grow and become a more mature Christian? When you're taking the Lord's Supper, are you dwelling on Christ crucified for sinners? Or can something distract you like that? It's not enough to say that we come to assembly. It's a start, but that's not enough. God wants your eager engagement in worship. Jesus says in Mark 4, 23-24, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. The effort you put into listening 
will determine what you get out of it. That's what Jesus is saying there. It's part of what he's saying there. I've told you before that I wasn't a very good student until I got a little older. And I think part of that is because as you go further in school, you get to study more of what you like. You get to study more of the things that drive you, more of the things that get you excited. For me, math was always my least favorite subject. I couldn't stand math. I didn't do good at, do well at it. And I didn't pay attention very much in class. My brain didn't seem to work that way. And so I didn't tend to listen very much. I didn't get very much out of it. And I even got bad grades in math. So students do better than that. Listen, pay attention. But it seems to me that sometimes we come to church and listen to the reading of Scripture and prayers and the sermon like we're listening to our least favorite subject. Is that, is that true? Do you think that's sometimes the case? Is this a subject we care about? Is, this, is the Bible a book we care about hearing? Is Jesus a person we care about getting to know? Friends, are you eager to hear the Scriptures? Are you eager to hear about the Savior who died for sinners so that we could have forgiveness of sins and life? Are you eager to hear that He is faithful and true and that He's coming back soon? I hope so. I hope we are. I hope we are eagerly engaged in listening. But being engaged in worship also has to do with being engaged in singing. In our culture, this is one of the rare occasions people get together and sing. Think about it. When do you think, get together with a bunch of other people and sing? Now, maybe some of you are music teachers or in, you're involved with leading music for children or something, but, you know, there's, uh, there's baseball games or uh, a game where people come together and sing the national anthem, or sometimes people just mouth the words there. Um, there's there's rock, rock band concerts, people, large crowds of people get together and sing uh, with their favorite band, and there's the church. There might be one of other two examples, but these are the few times where we come together to sing, and for the church, we come together to sing, not to a, a rock band, not even to a country, but to a God who is worthy of our worship. When we're singing, we're expressing praise to our God, we're worshiping Him, but we're also encouraging one another. Have you ever thought about that? We are singing to God, but we're also singing to one another. There's a horizontal singing, and there's a vertical singing. But are we engaged in worship? Are we engaged in the words of the song, even if we don't like the particular style or song or tune? Ephesians 5, 18-19 says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You see both uh, horizontal and vertical. Addressing one another, singing to the Lord, making melody to the Lord in your heart. Jesus says in John 4.23, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. Can you say that you are such a worshiper? Are you one who is worshiping Him in spirit from the depths of your heart and in truth? The true God according to who He is? God desires those kinds of worshipers and he desires those kinds of churches you've probably noticed it yourself but there's a huge difference 
between a church that is full of engaged worshipers and one that is not. Have you ever noticed that difference? You might could compare it to a basketball game. It's the difference between a crowd at an exhibition game, maybe the first or second game of the year, and a crowd that has camped out all week for a chance to watch Carolina Duke. Is there a difference in the engagement there? You know, one group's checking their iPhones and talking to their friends, and the other is hanging on every single pass, every single shot, every single call from the referee. There's a huge difference. And there's a huge difference between a church that is engaged in worship and a church that is not. What kind of church are we? What kind of church do we want to be? This is a part of God's will for our church and for your church involvement, that you, that we would be eagerly engaged in worship. Let's be eager to hear His Word. Let's be passionate in singing praises to God. Let's get excited about what God is going to do in our church, not for our glory, but for God's glory. We've looked at two parts of God's will for your church involvement. God wants you to regularly attend and be engaged in worship. But finally, God wants you to be actively participating in service to other church members. It is God's will for your church involvement that you are actively participating in service to other church members. Now, I don't mean that you're not supposed to serve other Christians uh, in other churches or that you're not supposed to serve those who don't believe in, in, in Jesus. Of course we're supposed to do that. And as we receive from His Word and as we grow, we'll want to serve people all over the place. We'll want to serve every chance we get. We're to serve everyone. But we do have a special obligation to serve those who are here, those who are in the family of God here at First Baptist Church. We have a special obligation to our spiritual brothers and sisters, our spiritual family. And I want to argue that the typical way we think about church church involvement in this sense is, is not the best way. For instance, what do churches typically do when trying to get others involved in the church? They try to to put them in some sort of program, right? Try to plug you into some program, get you involved. They might think, "Hmm, you're, you're good with children, so I'll put you here. Or you would be good serving on uh, the flower committee or, or the homecoming committee, so I'll put you here. And that works to a point. That gets the job done, but I think there's a better way. What is it that we're trying to accomplish as a church? Making disciples, right? See, our ministry is not programs, but people. Our ministry is not programs, but people. We want to invest, not in programs, but in personal relationships. There's a book that's been amazingly helpful to me in thinking about this. It's called The Trellis and the Vine. Here's what they say at the beginning of the book. We will be arguing that structures don't grow ministry any more than trellises grow vines. You know what the trellis and the vine is? The trellis is the structure that kind of guides the the vine growing. Um, They say structures don't grow ministry any more than trellises grow vines. And most churches need to make a conscious shift away from erecting and maintaining structures towards growing people who are disciple-making disciples of Christ. See, they're talking about vine work rather than trellis work. 
you don't get that, then listen to an example. This makes it absolutely clear. An example they give in the book. They say, imagine a reasonably solid Christian said to you after church one Sunday, and this is kind of addressing the pastor, look, I'd like to get more involved here and make a contribution, but I feel like there's nothing for me to do. I'm not on the inside. I don't ask to be on this committee or lead Bible studies. What can I do? And the authors say, what, do you, what, what would you immediately think or say? Would you start thinking of some event or program about to start that they could help with? Some job that needed doing, some ministry they could join us or support? This is how we're used to thinking about involvement in the church in terms of jobs and roles. Usher, Bible study leader, Sunday school teacher, treasurer, elder, musician, song leader, money counter, and so on. The implication of this way of thinking is clear. If all the jobs and roles are taken, then there's really nothing for me to do in this church. I'm re reduced to being a passenger. I'll just wait until I'm asked to do something. And the implication for the pastoral staff is similar. Getting people involved and active means finding a job for them to do. In fact, they say, the church growth gurus say that giving someone a job to do within the first six months of their joining is vital for them to feel like they belong. However, if the real work of God is people work, the prayerful speaking of his word by one person to another, then the jobs are never all taken. The opportunities for, uh, for Christians to minister personally to others are limitless. So, here's, here's what could be the, the reply. See that guy sitting over there on his own? That's Julie's husband. He's on the fringe of things here. In fact, I'm not really sure if he's crossed the line yet and become a Christian. How about I introduce you to him? And you arrange to have breakfast with him once a week and read the Bible together. Or see that couple over there? They're both fairly recently converted and really in need of encouragement and mentoring. Why don't you and your wife have them over? Get to know them. Read and pray the Bible, pray together once a month. And if you still have time and want to contribute some more, start praying for the people on your street. Invite them all, all over for a cookout at your house. That's the first step towards talking with them about the gospel or inviting them along to something. Of course, there's every chance that person will then say, but I don't know how to do those things. I'm not sure I'd know what to say or where to start. To which you reply, that's okay. Let's start meeting together and I can train you on how to do them. What if we put more time into developing people? What if we spent more of our time, resources, energy, investing in one another, in people, in personal relationships. In the scripture we look at, this is exactly what we see. The next time you're reading through the New Testament, for example, take special notice of what we could call the one another passages of scripture. The one another passages of scripture. Those are passages or verses which tell us to do things for and to one another in order to grow us to Christian maturity. Here are some examples. Jesus said, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Or Paul wrote in Romans 12:10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. He also said in Galatians 5:13. Do not use your freedom in Christ to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. 
and even in our passage in uh, Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Encourage one another. And listen to one last passage that tells us what God wants us to happen in His church. It's from Ephesians 4, 15 to 16. It says this, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. By Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, He has forgiven our sins. He has brought us into a family of God. Although our sins had separated us from God, He has brought us peace by Jesus and His sacrifice. And Jesus is the source of our life. He's the source of our life as the church. Just as we rely on Him for salvation, we must rely on Him for growth. But He uses means. He uses means to grow us, to sharpen us, to mature us, to strengthen us. And that that means is one another. He uses us to grow each other, to strengthen one another. So for our time of response, before we sing our song, I want us to, to be quiet for a minute and bow our heads and consider a few things. Consider this. If you measured your church involvement by these three things, what grade would you get? If you measured your church involvement by your regular attendance, your, re- your eager engagement in worship, by your active participation in serving other believers, what, what would it look like? Now consider this, what what could you begin doing in our church to be actively investing in someone else? Not in a program, but in a person. Could you start a a one-on-one Bible reading group at lunch? Could you start having other families over to your house for a meal? Could you go out with a, a different family every Sunday after church? Younger Christians, could you approach an older Christian who is mature and ask them to desi- disciple you so that you could eventually disciple someone else? What will you do to be active in this way? Now I also want to address those who are here and not Christians. In this message, you may have thought that Christianity is all about what you do, all about coming to church and doing your best to be uh, eagerly engaged and being involved in the church. And I want you to completely rid you of this idea that Christianity is about what you do. It's not. It's about a person. It's about Jesus. See, the Bible's already told us that We haven't lived as we should have. If there was a test for goodness, every one of us would fail it. We've sinned against God, and we deserve a huge penalty, death. But here's where we get to the main point of Christianity. God sent His Son, Jesus, 
to die as a substitute for sinners. And then he rose from the dead. The whole Christian message culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the point of Christianity, not what we do or don't do. And the Bible tells us all who change their minds and hearts about sin, all those who turn away from their selfish ways and back to God in faith, back to Jesus in faith, will be forgiven. So your biggest need is not what you need to be an active church member, if this is you. Your first need is forgiveness. Your biggest need is that you would have peace with God. And there's no other place to find that except through Jesus. So trust Him. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would do Your work by Your Word. That You would convict our hearts. Convict our hearts of sin and our faithlessness. And then draw our eyes to Jesus, the Savior who died for sinners like us. Draw our eyes to the One who came and suffered and bore the penalty that we deserve so that we could go free and have eternal life. Draw our eyes to Him who is the head of our church and who desires that we would be mature, that we would grow up in love together. And guide us by your Spirit as we do it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.